from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. So glad you're here. Listening in on the conversation we have every week, exploring all those things related to work and the rest of your life, your family, your community, our society, and your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I am the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program, both of which I launched in 1991. Oh my gosh, that's 30 years ago. I now run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership. You can go to totalleadership.org to find out more about how we help people and organizations find harmony and improve performance in and among all the different parts of life. New episodes of this show premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM 132. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business, as well as me, I'm at Stu Friedman. Well, the pandemic has forced uh, just about everyone other than essential workers to begin remotely, uh, to begin working remotely if they weren't laid off or furloughed. And as we've discussed on the show a number of times now in the last few months, this hasn't been good for most people. Uh, Many organizations weren't prepared to go remote, Um, all kinds of issues and adjustments. My guest today has uh, been studying how companies have indeed adjusted or didn't to meet the needs of uh, their people and their other stakeholders. She's been looking also at how people living together, uh, including those raising children together, how they have dealt with uh, the massive disruptions in how they've handled childcare responsibilities, housework uh, and their day jobs, how they've coped and um, divided responsibilities and other important dimensions of uh, responses to this to this massive adjustment that we've all had to make. Dr. Christian Shockley is Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Georgia. Kristen, welcome to Work and Life. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. Let me just tell listeners a little bit more about you uh, before we get into the conversation. Kristen's main area of research focuses on understanding the intersection of employees' work and family lives. She's conducted research aimed at uh, organizational initiatives that are intended to help employees manage the competing demands of life, like flexible work arrangements, the relationship between work-family conflict and health outcomes, including eating behaviors and physiological indicators of health, and understanding how dual earner couples balance work and family Roles. She also studies career development, focusing on workplace and academic mentoring, how people define career success, the, comp- uh, the, the, the uh, consequences of career compromise. Can I say that three times fast? I don't think so. Um, but we're probably not going to get into that, although I'll tell you later on where you can find out more about her body of research. Uh, Kristen had her undergraduate degree in in psychology from the University of Georgia and has advanced degrees, master's and PhD in organizational psychology, industrial organizational psychology from the University of South Florida. All right, Kristen. So um, how did your own child's daycare closing uh, last year affect you and your research? Yeah, that was really the, the impetus for all of this for me. I mean, I, obviously I study a lot of these areas, but I was, um, we got the news, you know, what mid early March, like a lot of other people that the daycare was closing and he was only 15 months at the time. Um, and my husband is a, a CTO of a startup, so he doesn't have a lot of job flexibility. And I was just sitting there thinking, what, how are we possibly going to do this? You know, even when we thought it was going to be a two week closure, which, you know, turned into a six months closure. Um, and then it just kind of started getting me thinking, well, what are, you know, we're not the only ones in this situation, obviously. And obviously this is a really interesting kind of natural experiment to study how couples are 
are coping with this and who's making the compromises and how they're making these decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that informed sort of that area of research. And then also generally just studying remote work, knowing that everybody was shifting to that and thinking, again, this is a perfect kind of natural experiment to, to try to get some, some solid research going on the topic. So you said your husband is a, a chief technology officer without a lot of flexibility. That really struck me. Why do you say that um, he has an inflexible work arrangement? Yeah, he just has um, pretty set long hours that um, their their organizations just doesn't offer a lot of flexibility. So I think mm-hmm. it's more of an issue of there's so much to be done mm-hmm. that uh, you kind of have to work those long hours. You know, flexibility is hard to do when you have really long hours generally. So um, he, he had worked remote before the pandemic and still mm-hmm. is, but, but it sort of has to be in front of his computer the whole time. Well, I, I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit more about how his work demands influence your ability to create a, uh, a home environment where you're living at work, working from home uh, that that works for for you, for your family. Um, so if we can stay on this for just a bit more before we get into what you did systematically to, to study this issue beyond uh, the, the walls of your home, what have you discovered uh, about what's worked, what hasn't in your own experience? So I think that one thing we're really fortunate is we have um, our own offices in our house. So we have our rooms with our doors and our policy is just, you know, if the door is closed, you don't come in unless it's an emergency. And then usually you text before so that we're not interrupting each other on important calls or whatnot. That is fortunate. So you live in Georgia, I assume. Yeah. What town? You live in Athens. So so, uh, you have this space and you're, you are indeed fortunate to have that. So rooms with doors, this is a big, big, big deal, is it not? Yeah, we, I mean, we used to live in Manhattan. Um, we moved here from, from New York City. So had we been there during this pandemic, it would be a totally different story, right? Because we had a one-bedroom apartment. Um, so uh, w- Were you parents then? We were not. All right. So that makes it a little simpler. Yeah. But still, one-bedroom apartment in Manhattan, I get it. I have a, a child who lives in a two-bedroom apartment in Manhattan with two children and a working spouse uh, and another one on the way. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's a lot more challenging when you have that space. So talk a little bit more, if you could, about the text requirement. So there's no door knocking, there's texting. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. So that way you don't have, if you're on a video call, you don't have a, a knock in the background and then you're looking and everybody kind of sees you getting distracted. Um, I think it's a little easier to kind of respond to a text and say, not now. Yeah, of course. It's uh, especially if you can do so while maintaining eye contact on the camera, which you don't really have to do. Yeah. Right. Well, that's it's, it's interesting because the eye contact on the camera is, you know, you're looking to make eye contact on the camera, you have to look at the camera versus the person on your Zoom screen. And I know. Interesting uh, art. I think we're all have been learning over the past year. Uh, yes, yes. All right. Well, so so having your own space and having, you know, an explicit norm about what it means to uh, to to indicate that you want to, um, you know, enter that private space of the other. That seems to me really important. Um, what else have you discovered? in your own experience before we get into what you found in your research? Yeah. Um, well, for until daycare opened back up in August, we were fortunate enough to have, my mom was about two hours away. So she came up about three days a week to help us with childcare, um, which was really the only way we were able to get anything done. Um, but before that, we really, outside of when I had maternity leave, we had always had our son in childcare outside of the home. Mm-hmm. So it was a really interesting you know, adding this distracted distraction of having him here on the one hand, it was sort of nice because you get to pop in and see him. But then on the other hand, um, I found myself, if I would hear him cry, I would be a lot more 
you know, kind of like what's going on down there, a lot more tuned to it. So I think for us, um, being able to go back to daycare to having him outside of the home has, has helped as well, but I know that's not an option for everyone. Right. Right. So you, you really do benefit from the resources available to you, not just uh, space in your home doors for each of you uh, to close, uh, but also grant parental support. Um, and, uh, and now out of home daycare, which you say has resumed. Yeah, it has. Well, we just, we just got off a 10 day quarantine where it was closed because there was a COVID case in the, the daycare. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Other than that, yes. So, so you when your mom comes up from Florida, she lives outside of Atlanta, so. outside of Atlanta. Okay. So she comes up and stays with you. She does. Yeah. So that's another member of the household. Yeah. So any, any, yeah. any, any key insights on that experience that you're willing to discuss <laughs> on national radio? You know, it, it actually went really well. She, she was great. Um, I think we, in our house too, we have a little area that has a separate entrance that before the pandemic we used as an Airbnb space. So she was able to stay there. So I think that really helped, which she kind of had her. Oh, I'm really just painting this. Like I have the best case scenario. I know. I know it's true. Well, you do. I mean, in some ways you have, you have a lot of resources and I think that's important to acknowledge clearly, but also to, to try to understand in terms of the impact that that's had. And perhaps more importantly, what it means for the, the majority of people who don't have this sort of beneficent, you know, environment in which to, you know, uh, work from home, live at work. Let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. And my guest today is Dr. Kristen Shockley, who's a professor of psychology at the University of Georgia. We're talking about, uh, well, we're about to talk about her research on the pandemic's impact on on families, on working families. So you jumped on this as a as a research opportunity. Well done, Kristen, that you were you were um, able to do that. Um, we've we've talked to a, a number of your colleagues, our colleagues in the research world, about this because uh, uh, yes, a lot of people are really interested in trying to understand what's going on here. What do we do? So you divided the effects of. Uh, of uh, the pandemic on work and the rest of life uh, up into um, a number of different kinds of uh, impacts, different kinds of effects, Uh, health and safety, telecommuting, virtual teamwork, job insecurity, precarious work, uh, HR policy, careers, a number, it's, it's, you've covered a lot of ground here. I want to focus on remote work. Uh, I think that's something that uh, is, is important for, for so many. So tell us, what did you find about the remote workforce in pandemic times? Yeah, to give you a, a little bit of background on the study we did, um, it was part of a National Science Foundation rapid response grant, which um, they offer in situations of like national emergencies, such as the pandemic. Um, So we were able to apply for it and get the funding really quickly, which was great. Um, And we recruited just about 500 people in a variety of different occupations, all who had not been working remote before and were working full-time remote due to COVID. And we gave them a one-time survey before the study started, and then we followed them for a month, and they took a survey every evening um, for four weeks, so... These people were wonderful participants to do all this for us. You had 500 people doing a survey every night? Yeah, for a month. How, how long was the survey? It was quick. It was just about five minutes. Okay. Yeah. So, um, all right. So that's your sample. That's, that's the, the basic method. Uh, yeah. Keep going. Tell yeah, us so. more about the study and what you found. Um, so we, we measured a lot of different things, but I can kind of touch on some of the highlights of the big things you're interested in. One was just, what are the best predictors of adjustment to remote work? Um, so we looked at that as we just flat out asked people, how well do you think you're adjusting? We also asked about their stress levels in remote work, um, as well as how well they thought they were performing in their job relative to how well they had been doing before. 
And then we, we had measured all kinds of different variables that we thought might relate to those adjustment outcomes. And so we put them all into a fancy um, analysis to see which ones mattered the most. And the trends we saw across the board were, the big one was social isolation. So the more that people felt that sense of isolation, um, generally the worse they were adjusting and the worse they were performing. Hmm. I think that's heightened by the pandemic, right? So how did you operationalize the concept social isolation? Like, how did you define that? Because it's possible to be, uh, you know, physically absent, but psychologically present, right? You and I are in different states where, but yet we're together uh, in time. We can see each other, although, of course, the audience can't see us, but we're talking. Uh, What does social isolation mean exactly in your study? Yeah, so it was really the subjective perception of it. So the questions would be like, I, I feel a lack of connection with others. Mm-hmm. You know, I miss seeing people. Um, and then just like, I feel isolated. So it was kind of a straightforward question. All right. So is that subjective sense of mm-hmm. feeling alone? Yeah, lonely? exactly. Yep. Um, so you could technically, maybe you have, you could have a lot of people in your home, but even still feel that right. Well, that's true. And of course, that's true in non-pandemic times. (laughs) It's, it's, uh, it's quite a common uh, phenomenon in our society, is it not for people to feel lonely, uh, even if they are surrounded by other people. Um, But that is certainly an aspect of pandemic life that is accentuated because of the physical isolation. Uh, So what about social isolation did you discover in your study? Um, really the main thing was just seeing that it, it did predict these outcomes. So it seemed to matter a lot and above, I mean, we measured over 60 different variables. So we're trying to get at things about the nature of your job, the nature of your organization's response to COVID, um, you know, things about your, your family life and of all those things, social isolation was the strongest predictor. So it seemed to matter the most. So I think what that says to me is that's just a really important thing that I think we need to focus on, um, you just in society in general, and then also from an organizational standpoint, what can we do during the pandemic to make people still feel this sense of connection? Hmm. And so I, I want to talk about, you know, the nature of the job, the organizational responses, and, uh, you know, the, the extent to which one feels uh, social support in one's home. Uh, and perhaps beyond using other means than, you know, physical co-location. But let's stay with this idea of how important social isolation or social connection, uh, you know, conversely, uh, how, how, how should people be thinking about that? Did you derive from your study any insights about what it is that reduces social isolation and thereby makes it you know, easier for people to adjust, feel less stressed, perform better? Yeah, so we, we tried to address that question by looking at some of the things we measured on a daily basis, um, like communication frequency we asked mm-hmm. about and the quality of communications people had every day with people at work. And interestingly, that actually didn't predict social isolation. Um, so again, that's speaking to, it's not just about the amount that you communicate with people, there's something else there about connection that I think is just hard to emulate um, when you don't actually see people. So yeah. you can be you can be speaking a lot to people, you can be zooming your brains out, uh, but still feel socially isolated, disconnected, alone, and thereby you know negatively affected in, in all the other ways that we've been discussing. Mm-hmm. Uh, does this speak to the quality of the interaction in terms of the kinds of things that are addressed in social exchanges that happen virtually? Yeah, that's one of those things that I wish we had gotten more info on now in retrospect. Um, the only thing we measured about the quality was really the job-related information exchange. So if they were getting what they needed to do their job. Mm. It wasn't, we really didn't get at any of the interpersonal aspects in our questions on that daily survey. Um, so if I could go back, I would certainly add those because I think I think that's probably where we would see um, you know, more of the the variance predicted in social isolation. Like what would you what would you ask about? Knowing what you know now, what what's the what's the 
issue that you'd want to have, you know, data about that you could then understand more the importance of being socially connected? That's a good question. I think I want to know more about people being able to still have informal interactions when they're apart. Um, because I think that's one thing in the workplace that happens that we maybe we've taken for granted until we all shifted to remote work. Um, if you notice in Zoom meetings, at least the ones that I'm in usually, if you had a regular meeting, people would kind of have some banter before, you know, kind of talking back and forth as people are coming in. But often in Zoom meetings, it's just quiet waiting for it to start because people, I guess, feel a little bit awkward. Just, you know, it's just a little bit of a different um, scenario. It doesn't foster that same kind of just talking about your life and catching up with people. Um, so I'd want to get at a little bit more of how much that's occurring now. How much people are able to talk about their lives right now? Yeah, just and non-work things and just really check in with each other and see right. how they're doing. Right. So, you know, I, I do a lot of Zoom meetings like you, and I also teach uh, via Zoom, as you are probably doing as well. And uh, and I've also been talking to a lot of people on the show about, about this phenomenon. One of the things that I've started to do uh, that has worked well... Um, that I'll offer to you as an idea, uh, just from my own experience that relates directly to this. And maybe you do something like this too. Before I begin any uh, class, you know, where I'm leading or any meeting where it's my meeting, at, you know, and, and I'm driving the agenda on Zoom, I will begin. And this, this can be in front of, you know, 200 people in a, in a talk that's, you know, that's taking place uh, in South America, or it could be in my students in the Wharton Executive MBA program in San Francisco or anywhere. I will say, let's all go to the chat now. And yeah, before we get going, please give me, give us uh, in a word or a phrase or a sentence, a response to this question. How are you feeling right now? And it's fantastic. It's just so wonderful because, uh, and then and then I invite people to read along with me as I'm reading in the chat, and I'll read some of the some of the notes aloud. And of course, people will share whatever it is that they want to share. But it establishes from the very start that I'm keen to understand what's happening inside of you. You know, in terms of your your subjective sense of well being, how you are feeling, and the the. I'll, 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 I'll stop this, <laughs> this extended example here uh, and get back to what you found here. But I'll just add one other piece. And that is that um, I think the most important outcome of that uh, minor intervention, I mean, it takes two minutes, is that people see how other people are feeling, mm -hmm. which, which normalizes their own sense of whatever it is, uh, you know, lucky grateful, um, stressed, anxious, overwhelmed. You know, these are the kinds of things people say and they see other people are saying the same thing or similar and they feel like, oh, it's not just me. I'm not just the only one who's messing up here. So- I love um, that. I'm going to steal that for teaching. Well, I was hoping you would. That's why, <laughs> that's why I explained it in detail and I hope that other people listening uh, will, will use that in other settings because another thing that, that we've found that I've observed is that and heard from other experts is that it's crucial for business leaders to say, first and foremost, uh, your well-being matters to me. Just say that out loud. Uh, you know, that's the most important thing right now. And to then, and, and a way to express that is to simply ask how people are feeling. So what do you like about that, Kristen? Well, you know, I was going to say that it echoes with in our study, we asked at the very end of the study, just open-ended, you know, if you could give one piece of advice to managers to help promote well-being for employees, what would it be? And we content coded those. And one of the top five things that came out was what you just said was just check in with me and just ask how I'm doing. Um, so that, that resonates with what we found, you know, more broadly in the study. Um, but I, I like both that it's the chat function. I think people feel a little bit more willing to say stuff in. So I like using that. Um, and then I also like what you said about normalizing how you're feeling, you know, we're, for pre pandemic, I think people ask, how are you doing? And you're just supposed to say good, but most of us are, it's a really hard time. Right. And it, it helps to know that 
if you're suffering, you're not suffering alone. It does help. And that I, and that I, I believe addresses, you know, this most pressing problem that you have observed. And that is the sense of social isolation and the need for connection. What else did you learn about the, the, the issue of social isolation um, that is important for listeners to know? So in this study, I don't think that there's too much more I could expand on, but I did do another study um, mm-hmm. that's on a related topic of, of Zoom fatigue, because a lot of people were saying kind of the solution to the social isolation, you know, have more video conferences. And then suddenly people started realizing, wow, that's really draining. Um, You know, so we, we did a study. It was pretty cool. It was a true experiment within a company. And we were able to um, have half of the people turn their camera off for two weeks during meetings. And the other half had their camera on the whole time. And then, okay, hang on to that thought. Okay. Uh, And because we have to break now. So this is, this is a cliffhanger folks. (laughs) We'll be back in just a minute. Um, when I continue my conversation with Dr. Kristen Shockley, uh, we do have to take a short break. Don't come, uh, don't go away. When we come back, we'll find out what happened when half the group had to shut their cameras off and the other half didn't. You can speculate about what the result might have been in terms of Zoom fatigue. Should be pretty obvious, I think. Maybe not. Maybe there's some surprises here. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Hey, welcome back to Work and Life. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I am the founder of Total Leadership, which is a management consulting and training company dedicated to helping people and organizations find greater harmony among the different parts of life and improve performance in all of them. Go to totalleadership.org to find out more. I'm so glad you're listening. My guest today is Dr. Kristen Shockley. She's an associate professor of psychology at the University of Georgia. And we're talking about her research on how people have responded to the pandemic uh, in terms of their remote work experiences. Um, And Kristen, you were about to tell us about a study that you did on Zoom fatigue. Please fill us in. What did you find? Okay, right. So we have this experiment where the, the two groups either had their camera on or off. And then every day we measured um, how much fatigue they felt at the end of the day, how much energy, and then also how engaged they were in meetings that day and how much voice they felt they had. Because that's, you know, something else people talk about is, well, you need to have the camera on because you're more engaged in the meeting what we did find and, you know, drum roll, not that surprising, like you said, is that when you had your camera on, you were significantly more fatigued. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, the link to engagement was different than we thought. So um, if you experienced that fatigue, then you were in turn less engaged in the meetings. So we actually weren't finding that having your camera on helped with engagement. In fact, it actually hurt engagement when it caused fatigue. Oh, well, what if it didn't cause fatigue? Then there was no relationship. So it wasn't, it was never better for engagement. Having the camera on? Yeah. Get out. Yeah, I know it's surprising, but I- How how do you explain that? I think in this particular company, people were in a lot of meetings. Um, And so I think it was just the norm that they are just used to being in meetings. Um, And they were, they were actually remote before the pandemic Mm -hmm. too. Um, so I don't know if it, I, I want to replicate this elsewhere and see if we find the same effect um, with people who are less used to being in meetings. But um, yeah, they, I mean, I find my, for myself, having a camera helps me be more engaged, but that's not what our data said across. Yeah. So we got to, I'll be interested to see what you discover when you expand the, the samples uh, at which, you know, the different kinds of organizational settings in which you explore that question, because it seems counterintuitive to not have the visual information that comes to you when you see a person, um, as opposed to not you know, just seeing a black screen with their name on it or their photo. Um, we also looked at, um, some characteristics of people that might affect those relationships. So we found that the 
the video fatigue was stronger for women than men. Um, and we hypothesize it's because there's different standards of appearance for women. Um, just oh. to, you know, women are kind of held to different standards. So uh, the having to pay attention to yourself all on the camera and that presentation um, effects were more draining for them. So women feel more compelled to be aware of their um, appearance and to, to manage it and to extend, expend energy on that and thereby feel more drained when they have to show up visually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause they're just generally more judged on appearance, right. Outside of in every context, <laughs> but men are more vain. Are they? I didn't know. That. You didn't know that. <laughs> Is that true? Is that what the research says? Uh, <laughs> that's certainly been my experience um, of the world after 68 years. And I think there's evidence to that effect, but I couldn't cite it for you. But I take your point, certainly, uh, that the that being physically being being visually present creates another burden, yet another burden uh, for women in Zoom life. Um, well, turning back to to the study on um you know, the broader study of how people have adjusted, what else uh, should listeners know about the, the findings and their implications in terms of adjustments that uh, are, have worked or have not worked in terms of their impact on uh, stress and performance? Yeah. Um, so another big thing we looked at was the, the structure of people's workspace. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about me saying I have a door that I can close. So we actually ask people, what does your workspace look like? Um, and we measure things like, do you have a adequately sized monitor? Do you have a comfortable chair? Do you have a big enough desk? Do you have a door? All that kind of stuff. Um, and we did find that those things mattered. So particularly um, of the things within that that mattered the most was having an external keyboard, having an adequately sized desk and having external monitors. So from a very practical standpoint, that seems to be the setup and a quiet room. Forgot about that one. That seems that's, to be the setup. That's the big one, right? Actually, the, the monitors what mattered the most. The monitors. Yeah. Because I think people, if you just have your laptop, you know, there's it's much smaller maybe than the workspace people were used to at work. Yeah, I hate zooming on a laptop. Yeah. It's just, I mean, that's because like my ancient eyes, you know, can barely see anything anymore. And so, but it's when it's all crunched up uh, and it's just so much better when, you know, I'm right now sitting at my, my desktop and I've got fortunately two monitors and there's a lot of space here and I just feel ah, a little roomier, Definitely. which helps. It helps. I find that with teaching too, because you have so much you're paying attention to with Zoom and teaching trying to look at the students and look at your slides. So if you've got the space and the money to have an external monitor, that's a good investment you're saying. Yeah. As well as external keyboard. And I think that's just an ergonomic consideration, right? It's more comfortable when you're typing a lot to have that. Um, and I've, I've seen some companies that I've done a little bit of consulting with during this time talking about using, like they used to give people stipends for um, commuting, you know, yeah. connecting, and they would, take that money and since no one's commuting now and allow people to use it to enhance their home workspace, which I think is a great idea. That makes perfect sense. So if you're, if you're running a company or a, or a department or a division or a small business and you've got, you know, surplus resources because of, uh, you know, the, the no commuting costs, I mean, there's probably no one listening right now who's in the position of having surplus resources, but, but something that will both tell your people that you care about them and will actually make them not just happier, but also better able to perform is, uh, is a better uh, computer setup. I mean, I, I suppose that seems obvious, but let's just, let's just say it. Uh, you found that in your study. What else did you find? The one other big thing that stood out across our different um, indicators of adjustment was how well you're sleeping. So it's Go hard, on. hard to perform well and adjust well when you are not sleeping well during the pandemic. Um, right. So like what specifically about lack of sleep? Was it the number of hours or whether, whether it was interrupted, um, whether you were able to take naps during the day? We measured, we asked people every morning about their sleep how many hours of sleep they got and how well they slept. 
Yeah. So um, both the quantity and the quality mattered. All right. So get your rest, people. And if you can, nap. See, what I do is I'll shut off the screen and I'll shut off the sound and I'll go lay down on the couch that you can see in the background here, Kristen, and I'll just go to sleep for 10 minutes and nobody will know because, you know, who cares if he's not there? It's only Stu. And I'll come back quite refreshed and the meeting will then go fabulously uh, for the remainder of the time after I've napped. It's funny you say that. I just started doing that this week. Um, and just taking these 20 minute cat naps in the afternoon. And I found the same thing. It's really been working wonders for me. Well, I mean, I was being slightly facetious by saying that I would cut out of the meeting to nap. <laughs> um, but another thing that I do when I have a long meeting, like a three hour meeting, I will religiously make sure that there's at least 10 minutes every hour for break. Yeah. So frequent breaks is also super important. Uh, but yeah, if you have the, the, the capacity to take short naps, uh, during the course of the day, multiple times, it is uh, it can be deeply refreshing. Um, let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm talking to Dr. Kristen Shockley. She's done some fabulous research on the pandemic and its impact on people, on families, on businesses. Um, she's a associate professor of psychology at the University of Georgia down in Athens. Well, um, let's talk about couples. Okay. Now, what, what are the big ideas in terms of what you found in terms of, uh, people living together, parents or not, uh, what, what are some of the findings that, um, you want to share with our audience? Well, I think the most interesting findings come from the other study I did with, that was specifically couples with kids under age six. Okay. This was like a research is me search thing. You know, I was in the position with a young kid thinking this is the age that's really hard when you don't have childcare. Yes. Uh, me search, by the way, a term you've heard on the show a number of times before is people studying their own lives, which is something that I've been doing for practically 40 years. Please continue, Kristen. Yeah. So we were just interested in how are couples managing um, if they, and it was all people who still were working, but had no childcare. And so we, we asked both members of the couple separately, open-ended questions about what are you doing for childcare? And then um, followed them up seven weeks later and got some well-being outcomes. And then we did some analyses to see like, what are the types of strategies people are using and you know, how well are they working? Yes. And I think maybe not shocking, but depressing was the fact that a third of the couples were using a strategy where the, and these were all um, heterosexual married couples where the wife was doing either all of the childcare or the vast majority of the child. That's, that's referred to as the remote wife does it all category. Am yes. I right? Remote wife does it all. Yes. That's, that's the official name of that, that, uh, that kind of domestic arrangement. Do I have that yes. correct? That's what we have coined it. Yes. Um, remote wife does it all. Mm-hmm. And that sounds, that sounds pretty bad. For the it is. Life. <laughs> yeah. When you look at the, how that links to the outcome. So we measured um, family cohesion, relationship tension, sleep, psychological distress, and job performance. And that group pretty much across the board was faring the worst. Um, and which I think you'd expect that with the wives because they're doing full-time childcare and full-time working. But interestingly, there was also an impact on the husband's job performance. Say more. So I think what's happening here is it's creating so much tension at home. <laughs> Everybody's just so stressed out by this, or at least the wife is so stressed out by this, um, that it, you know, is making it harder for the husband him to focus at work, even though ostensibly his work situation hasn't really changed because he's not he's not doing any of the child care. So in the remote wife does it all kind of arrangement, the husband's job performance is negatively affected. Is that correct? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting. So, so then the husband's employer would be interested in a more egalitarian setup at home, would he? Would they not? Yeah, and that's that's what we're hoping as a takeaway. Something that we we put in the study and writing it up is, you know, think about from an organization standpoint. It's not always in your best interest to be like, no, we're not having any flexibility. You just have to figure it out. Um, you're seeing better outcomes when you gave people a little bit of that flexibility so that they can take care of stuff on the home front. So it's not spilling over into work. 
So have you talked to your bosses, your, your husband's boss about this study? <laughs> Boy, would I like to. <laughs> have Listen, well, maybe we'll talk offline about some <laughs> ideas I have about that, because okay. uh, that's a big part of my own work is how you talk to people in all parts of your life, including those who affect, you know, those who are most important to you about creating uh, change in ways that work for all. So um, the, the flexibility afforded to let's husbands in the uh, remote wife does it all category. That's, that's one thing, but then there's also the matter of uh, let's say one does have flexibility more than let's say your husband does and has, you know, the capacity to adjust time, time devoted to work. Uh, what did you study? What then makes it likely that that resource, the flexibility, uh, is then applied to uh, creating an arrangement of uh, responsibilities in the home environment that are um, better than the remote wife does it all category? Yeah, so we... We found when both people are remote and seem to have that flexibility, um, it leads to more egalitarian strategies, but within those people tended to adopt kind of one of two routes. Um, the first one was just, we called mini shifts. So it would be like the wife says, okay, I'm working every day from eight to 12, then the kid naps, and then you're on childcare duty, you know, from one to five. And so they would kind of stagger their day like that. And then we found other people who we called. So, hang on. So let's just talk. Let's just get clear on the mini shift strategy so that within a day, there was a sh there was a change of ownership of the, the task of child care throughout the day. Yeah. Is that it? Exactly. Yes. OK, so that's the mini shift. Keep going. And then the needs based alteration. That was people who more just every. What did you call that? Sorry. Needs needs based alteration. Needs based alteration. Yeah, so shifting based on your work needs or the kids' needs. So these people would pretty much every night kind of look at their schedules and say, okay, when does it make sense for me to be on? When does it make sense for you to be on childcare duties? Um, and then they would be more flexible during the day. If something came up, they would cover for each other. So the mini shifts were more kind of uh, fixed in, yeah. their, in the time boundaries mm -hmm. associated with who had responsibility for the children. Is that yeah. right? Exactly. Okay. So there's the mini shift kind of fixed needs-based alteration, which requires yeah. a continual adjustment, I imagine, yeah. and a lot of communication. Yeah. yeah. And so I actually thought before we ran the analysis that, that the mini shifts would be better just because it's set, you know, it's, you know, exactly when you're supposed to be doing what, but we, we didn't find any differences in outcomes for relationship variables or um, the sleep or distress, but we did find job performance was higher for the needs-based needs alteration. So, Okay. Um, and, and why do you think that is? Let me ask you and first remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, speaking with Dr. Kristen Shockley who's an associate professor of psychology at the University of Georgia, who's done some cutting edge work on life in pandemic times and remote work, uh, its effects on families and how families are coping. So um, please continue. What, what, what did you find? Yeah, I think that you, your point earlier about communication, that's, that's really why I think this, this needs-based strategy, we are seeing a little bit of better outcomes because it's forcing you to communicate. And we know that generally communication tends to relate to, to a host of other good things. So it's, it's forcing that within the, the couple. Now, is that, um, there's also the alternating days strategy. Yeah. Um, that, that was, and so describe that and were there any others that you, that you found? Yeah. So the alternating days, this one actually on average across the board had the best outcomes. Um, but I think it's really only conducive to certain types of jobs. So mm. these were people who were not working remote and they were, um, oh. they had jobs that would, they basically scaled back. So they would just alternate days. Like the husband works um, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the wife works Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And so they were able to really completely segment their days. So you're either working that day or you're on childcare that day. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's something about that segmentation, perhaps during these pandemic times that 
at least made the short term outcomes a little bit better. Now, why why wouldn't that work for the mini shift strategy though? Yeah, because that's a good. Is that because the segmentation isn't really as clear and defined when it when both parties are at home and there's a lot of permeability between the domains? That would be my guess. Is you know we know the challenges of remote work is that when work and family are in the same place, it is quite a bit harder to segment them. So I'm assuming you still had some interruptions during that time. Uh, we, we've only got a few minutes left here, Kristen, and I've got uh, so many more things I want to ask you about. Um, I have to ask you about grandparents. What's, what's the big idea about grandparents that you've found in your study or in your own personal experience? I'm looking for, I'm asking for a friend here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so another one of our uh, categories that emerged was people who were able to outsource during the pandemic. Um, so I think a lot of that was grandparents or other family members, mm-hmm. you know, because that's it's, it's tricky during these times because you can't just have anybody come into your home. You really have to feel like, or at least my view is, I, I have to feel like I can trust the person that they're practicing safe pandemic <laughs> behaviors as well. Um, and I feel like you can, you have to have that level of trust, hopefully a little bit more with grandparents or other family members. Um, mm-hmm. And so people who are able to outsource, you know, also saw pretty good outcomes. Their job performance wasn't really affected as we'd kind of expect. Um, but I think that, you know, of course that's really just depends on everybody has different situations. And if you have that available to you um, versus not. Uh, any tips on how to make those most uh, effective, um, you know, the accessing of uh, extended family members as sources of support at home, grandparents, others, uh, to make it work and to, you know, are, are there particular pitfalls um, that you observed in your in your research that um, my friends should know about? So we didn't ask specifically about this, but I know in some of the open-ended reports, people had said their original plan was to use grandparents or family members. And then it just, it, you could only do it for so long, right? You can't rely, expect people to come for two months, I guess. Uh. So I think it's kind of having clear expectations for how much the person's going to support. And then I think gratitude's really important in, in keeping that relationship going is to expressing to the person helping you just what, and how meaningful it is to you. <laughs> you know, and how you really wouldn't be able to get by without them so that they feel that sense of importance and meaning in what they're doing too. So you tell your mom how much you appreciate what she's doing when she comes out to help you. I did. I absolutely did. And I, I put an acknowledgement in one of my research papers to her. About it. Did she care about that? Really? <laughs> I sent her a picture of it. I thought she'd get more excited than she did. I think, yeah. like, what is this? <laughs> All right. Well, um, in, in the couple minutes we got left here, what, what's the most important thing you want people to know uh, from the, the outcomes of your study here and include in that any silver linings that we uh, we might be trying to find here as we dig through these difficult times. Yeah, um, I think the f- first thing I would say is kind of a big picture point, which is prior to the pandemic, there was a lot of resistance to remote work. And I think people just had this idea in their head that when you work remote, you're not working as hard, that like out of, out of sight, employees aren't going to work. Mm-hmm. And you know, we found that people, we asked, you know, what percentage relative to 100% do you think you're performing at? And, um, you know, it was quite high. It was, um, I think it was 82%. Um, and, and a fair amount of people said they're performing better than they were before. Interesting. And that's during a pandemic. So to me, this speaks to the idea, and I think you've seen a lot of popular press articles about this too, that remote work's probably here to stay. And it, it actually can work a lot better than many people thought it could before. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just have to have the right support conditions. Some of the stuff we talked about with the workspace, um, you know, employers just reaching out, making sure that people are okay, still making sure you're offering the same support to remote workers as you would if they were co-located. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm kind of hoping that we will see flexibility as more of um, more typical moving forward, because I think there are a lot of benefits that maybe we aren't seeing right now, but in more normal times, we'll see even more of that. Um, some other, you know, silver linings, we, we did ask a question at the end of our remote study, basically just what are some 
positive things you've seen come out of the pandemic. Yes, give us the, the top one and then we're going to have to wrap it up. Yeah. Um, people said that they had a new appreciation for working parents. Uh, you mean they themselves did or or that their employers had that sense about their the people who work for them? They themselves did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so this sample had a mix of people who worked or were parents and one. Ah, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, uh, that is an important uh, uh, observation for our, us as a society, as well as for all of us as individuals, and a, and a fitting note for us to close on. Uh, Kristen, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Where's the best place for listeners to learn more about your wonderful work? Um, if you go to the University of Georgia Psychology Department webpage, you can find a link um, to my webpage there where I have a, a host of information about my research as well as links to many of these articles. Well, all right. Thank you so much, Kristen. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week, 5 p.m. Eastern. If you have a question about something you heard on the show today, just email me. It's friedmanatwharton.upenn.edu. I love hearing from listeners of this show. You can also write to our station at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And you can follow on Twitter at SXM Business. I'm at Stu Friedman. And you can go to totalleadership.org to get free podcast versions of this show uh, a little bit after it airs on the radio, along with all kinds of other free resources, videos, book chapters, articles, and other stuff. Thanks, Patty Hall, for producing the show and our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.